0: Section 21 of Essays and Dialogues This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays and Dialogues by Giacomo Leopardi Translated by Charles Edwards Section 21 Remarkable Sayings of Philip Ottonieri, Chapters 4-7 to chapter four ottonieri observed that irresolute men sometimes persevere in their undertakings in the face of the greatest opposition this is even a consequence of their irresolution for were they to abandon their design it would be evidence that they had for once fulfilled a determination sometimes they skillfully and speedily carry out a resolution to this they are urged by fear lest they should be compelled to cease their task when they would return to the state of perplexity and uncertainty in which they were formerly thus they strenuously hasten the execution of their design stimulated rather by anxiety and uncertainty as to whether they will conquer themselves than by the goal or the difficulties to be overcome before it can be reached another time he said with a smile that people accustomed to give expression to their every thought and feeling in conversation with others cry out when alone if a fly bite them or if they chance to upset a glass of water and on the other hand they who live solitary lives become so reserved that even the presentiment of apoplexy would not induce them to speak in the presence of others he was of the opinion that most men reputed great in ancient and modern times have obtained their reputation through a preponderance of one quality over the rest in their character and a man possessed of the most brilliant but evenly proportioned endowments would fail to acquire celebrity either with his contemporaries or posterity he divided the men of civilized nations into three classes the first class are they whose individual nature and partly also their natural human constitution become transformed under the influence of the arts and customs of urban life among these he included all men who are skilful in business whether private or public who appreciate society and make themselves universally agreeable to their fellows generally speaking such men alone inspire esteem and respect the second class are they who preserve their primitive nature in a greater degree, either from lack of culture or because they are naturally incapable of being influenced by the arts, manners and customs of others. This is the most numerous of the three classes and is held in general contempt. It embraces those who are known as the common people, or who deserve to be included with them, be their station in life what it may. The third class Incomparably the smallest in numbers, and often even more despised than the second, consists of those men in whom nature is strong enough to resist and often repulse the civilizing influence of the times. They are seldom apt in business or self-governed in society. Nor do they shine in conversation, nor succeed in making themselves agreeable to their fellow men. This class is subdivided into two varieties. The one includes those strong and courageous natures that despise the contempt they excite, and often indeed esteem it more than honour. They differ from other men, not only by nature, but also by choice and preference. Having nothing in common with the hopes and pleasures of society, solitary in a crowd, they avoid other men as much as they themselves are avoided. Specimens of this class are rarely met with the other variety consists of persons whose nature is a compound of strength weakness and timidity and who are therefore in a constant state of agitation they are as a rule desirous of associating with their fellows and wishing to emulate the men of the cultivated class they feel acutely the contempt in which they are held by their inferiors these men are never successful in life they fail in ever becoming practical and in society are neither tolerable to themselves nor others not a few of our most gifted men of modern times have belonged to this division in more or less degree j j rousseau is a famous example and with him may be bracketed one of the ancients virgil of the latter it is said on the authority of melissus that he was very slow of speech and apparently a most ordinary endowed man and this together with the probability that owing to his great talents virgil was little at ease in society seems likely enough both from the laboured subtlety of his style, and the nature of his poetry. It is also confirmed by what we read towards the end of the second book of the Georgics. There the poet expresses a wish for a quiet and solitary life, as though he regarded it as a remedy and refuge more than an advantage in itself. Now, seeing that with rare exceptions men of these two species are never esteemed until they are dead, and are of little power in the world, he asserted, as a general rule, that the only way to gain esteem during life is to live unnaturally. And since the first class, which is the mean of the two extremes, represents the civilization of our times, he concluded from this, and other circumstances, that the conduct of human affairs is entirely in the hands of mediocrity. He distinguished also three conditions of old age, compared with the other ages of man. When nature and manners were first instituted, men were just and virtuous at all ages. Experience and knowledge of the world did not make men less honest and upright. Old age was then the most venerable time of life, for besides having all the good qualities common to other men, the aged were naturally possessed of greater prudence and judgment than their juniors. But in the process of time, the conduct of men changed. Their manners became debased and corrupt. Then were the aged the vilest of the vile, for they had served a longer apprenticeship to vice, had been longer under the influence of the wickedness of their neighbours, and were besides possessed of the spirit of cold indifference natural to their time of life. Under such conditions they were powerless to act, save by calumny, fraud, perfidy, cunning, dissimulation, and other such despicable means. The corruption of men at length exceeded all bounds. They despised virtue and well-doing before they knew anything of the world and its sad truth. In their youth they drained the cup of evil and dissipation. Old age was then not indeed venerable, for few things thenceforward could be so called, but the most bearable time of life. For whereas the mental ardour and bodily strength which formerly stimulated the imagination and the conception of noble thoughts had often given rise to virtuous habits, sentiments, and actions the same causes latterly increased man's wickedness by enlarging his capacity for evil to which it lent an additional attractiveness but this ardour diminished with age bodily decrepitude and the coldness incident to age things ordinarily more dangerous to virtue than vice in addition to this excessive knowledge of the world became so dissatisfactory and wearisome a thing that instead of conducting men from good to evil as formerly it gave them strength to resist wickedness and sometimes even to hate it so that comparing old age with the other periods of life it may be said to have been as better to good in the earliest times as worse to bad in the corrupt times and subsequently as bad to worse chapter five ottonieri often talked of the quality of self-love Nowadays called egotism. I will narrate some of his remarks on this subject He said that if you hear a person speak well or ill of another with whom he has had dealings and term him honest or the contrary Value his opinion not a whit He speaks well or ill of the man simply as his relationship with him has proved satisfactory or the reverse He said that no one can love without a rival being asked to explain he replied because the person beloved is a very close rival of the lover suppose a case he said in which you asked a favour from a friend who could not grant it without incurring the hatred of a third person suppose too that the three interested people are in the same condition of life I affirm that your request would have little chance of success, even though your gratitude to the grantor might exceed the hatred he would incur from the other person. The reason of this is as follows. We fear men's anger and hatred more than we value their love and gratitude, and rightly so, for do we not oftener see the former productive of results than the latter? Besides, hatred or vengeance is a personal satisfaction, whereas gratitude is merely a service pleasing to the recipient. He said that respect and services rendered to others in expectation of some profitable return are rarely successful, because men, especially nowadays when they are more knowing than formerly, are less inclined to give than receive. Nevertheless, such services as the young render to the old who are rich or powerful attain their end more often than not. The following remarks about modern customs I remember hearing from his own mouth nothing makes a man of the world so ashamed as the feeling that he is ashamed if by chance he ever realises it marvellous is the power of fashion for we see nations and men so conservative in everything else and so careful of tradition act blindly in this respect often indeed unreasonably and against their own interests fashion is despotic she constrains men to lay aside change or assume manners customs and ideas just when she pleases even though the things changed be rational useful or beautiful and the substitutes the contrary there are an infinite number of things in public and private life which though truly ridiculous seldom excite laughter if by chance a man does laugh in such a case he laughs alone and is soon silent on the other hand we laugh daily at a thousand very serious and natural things and such laughter is quickly contagious thus most things which excite laughter are in reality anything but ridiculous and we often laugh simply because there is nothing to laugh at or nothing worthy of laughter we frequently hear and say such things as the good ancients our good ancestors etc again a man worthy of the ancients by which we mean a trustworthy and honest man every generation believes on the one hand that its ancestors were better than its contemporaries and on the other hand that the human race progresses as it leaves the primitive state to return to which would be a movement for the worse further and further behind wonderful contradiction the true is not necessarily the beautiful yet though beauty be preferable to truth where the former is wanting, the latter is the next best thing. Now, in large towns, the beautiful is not to be found, because it no longer has a place in the excitement of human life. The true is equally non-existent, for all things there are false or frivolous. Consequently, in large towns one sees, feels, hears, and breathes nothing but falsity, which in time custom renders even pleasurable. To sensitive minds, what misery can exceed this? People who need not work for their bread, and who accordingly leave the care of it to others, have usually great difficulty in providing themselves with one of the chief necessities of life, occupation. This may indeed be called the greatest necessity of life, for it includes all others. It is greater even than the necessity of living, for life itself, apart from happiness, is not a good thing. And possessing life, as we do, our one endeavour should be to endure as little unhappiness as possible. Now, on the one hand, an idle and empty life is very unhappy, and on the other hand, the best way to pass our time is to spend it in providing for our wants. He said that the custom of buying and selling human beings has proved useful to the race. In confirmation of this, he mentioned the practice of inoculating for smallpox, which originated in Circassia. From Constantinople it passed to England, and thence became disseminated throughout europe its office was to mitigate the destructiveness wrought by true smallpox, which besides endangering the life and comeliness of the Circassian children and youths was especially disastrous in its effects on the sale of their maidens he narrated of himself that on leaving school to enter the world of life he mentally resolved inexperienced and devoted to the truth as he was to praise no person or thing that did not seem really deserving of praise. He kept his determination for a whole year, during which time he did not utter a single word of praise. Then he broke his vow, fearing lest, from want of practice, he should forget all the eulogistic phraseology he had learned shortly before, at the school of rhetoric. From that time he absolutely renounced his intention. CHAPTER six ottonieri was accustomed to read out passages from books taken at hazard especially those of ancient writers he would often interrupt himself by uttering some remark or comment on this or that passage one day he read from laotius's lives of the philosophers the passage where Kilo, being asked how the learned differed from the ignorant is said to have replied that the former possess hopes ottonieri said now all is changed the ignorant hope, but the learned do not. Again, as he read in the same book how Socrates affirmed that the world contains but one benefit, knowledge, and but one evil, ignorance, he said, I know nothing about the knowledge and ignorance of the ancients, but in the present day I should reverse this saying. Commenting on this maxim of Hegesius, also from the book of Laertius. The wise man attends to his own interests in everything, he said. If all men who carry out this principle be philosophers, Plato may come and establish his republic throughout the civilized world. He greatly praised the following saying of Bion Boristhenes, mentioned by Laotius. They who seek the greatest happiness suffer most. To this he added, and they, on the other hand, are happiest who are contented with least and who are accustomed to enjoy their happiness over again in memory from plutarch he read how stratocles excited the anger of the athenians by inducing them on a certain occasion to sacrifice as though they were victors and how he then replied by demanding why they blamed him that he had made them happy and joyful for the space of three days ottonieri added Nature might make the same response to those who complain that she endeavours to conceal the truth beneath a multitude of vain but beautiful and pleasing appearances. How have I injured you in making you happy for three or four days?" On another occasion he remarked that Tasso's saying about a child induced to take his medicine under a false belief. He is nourished on deception. is equally applicable to all our race, in relation to the errors in which man puts faith. Reading the following from Cicero's Paradoxes Do pleasures make a person better or more estimable? Is there any one who boasts of the pleasures he enjoys? He said, Beloved Cicero, I cannot say that pleasures make men in the present day either more estimable or better, but undoubtedly they cause them to be more esteemed. For in the present day, most young men seek esteem by no other way than pleasure and not only do they boast of these pleasures when they obtain them but they din the intelligence of their enjoyment into the ears of friends and strangers willing or unwilling there are also many pleasures which are eagerly desired and sought after not as pleasures but for the sake of the renown reputation and self-satisfaction that they bring and very often these latter things are appropriated when the pleasures have neither been obtained nor sought or else have been entirely imaginary he noted from Ariane's history of the wars of Alexander the Great that at the Battle of Issus, Darius placed his Greek mercenaries in the van of his army and Alexander his Greeks at the wings. He thought that this fact alone was sufficient to determine the result of the battle. He never blamed authors for writing much about themselves. On the contrary, he applauded them for so doing, and said that on such occasions they are nearly always eloquent, and their style, though perhaps unusual and even singular, is ordinarily good and fluent. And this is not surprising, for writers' treating of themselves have their heart and soul in the work. They are at no loss what to say. Their subject and the interest they take in it are jointly productive of original thought. They confine themselves to themselves, and do not drink at strange fountains, nor need they be commonplace and trite there is nothing to induce them to garnish their writing with artificial ornamentation or to affect an unnatural style and it is an egregious error to suppose that readers are ordinarily little interested in a writer's confessions for in the first place whenever a man relates his own experiences and thoughts simply and pleasingly he succeeds in commanding attention secondly because in no way can we discuss and represent the affairs of others more truthfully and effectively than by treating of our own affairs seeing that all men have something in common either naturally or by force of circumstances and that we are better able to illustrate human nature in ourselves than in others in confirmation of these opinions he instanced Demosthenes' oration for the crown in which the speaker continually referring to himself is surpassingly eloquent and cicero when he touches on his own affairs is equally successful peculiarly so in his oration for milo admirable throughout but above all praise towards the end where he himself is introduced bossuet is also supremely excellent in his panegyric of the prince de Condé, where he mentions his own extreme age and approaching death again the emperor julian whose writings are all else trifling and often unbearable is at his best in the misapogeny speech against the beard in which he replies to the ridicule and malice of the people of antioch he is here scarcely inferior to lucian in wit vigor and acuteness whereas his work on the caesars professedly an imitation of lucian is pointless dull feeble and almost stupid in italian literature which is almost devoid of eloquent writings the apology of lorenzo de medici is a specimen of eloquence grand and perfect in every way tasso also is often eloquent where he speaks much of himself and is nearly always excessively so in his letters which are almost occupied with his own affairs chapter seven many other famous sayings of ottonieri are recorded amongst them is a reply he gave to a clever well-read young man who knew little of the world this youth said that he learned daily one hundred pages of the art of self-government in society but remarked ottonieri the book has five million pages another youth whose thoughtless and impetuous behavior constantly got him into trouble used to excuse himself by saying that life is a comedy Maybe replied ottonieri but even then it is better for the actor to gain applause than rebuke often too the ill-trained or clumsy comedian ends by dying of starvation one day he saw a murderer who was lame and could not therefore escape being carried off by the police see si, friends he said justice lame though she be can bring the doer of evil to account if he also be lame during a journey through italy he met a courtier who desirous of acting the critic to ottonieri began i will speak candidly if you will allow me i will listen attentively said the other for as a traveller i appreciate uncommon things being in need of money he once asked a loan from a certain man who excusing himself on the plea of poverty added that were he rich the necessities of his friends would be his first thought i should be truly sorry were you to bestow on us such a valuable moment replied ottonieri god grant you may never become rich when young he wrote some verses using certain obsolete expressions at the request of an old lady he recited them to her she professed ignorance of their meaning and said that in her day such words were not in use ottonieri replied i thought they might have been simply because they are very ancient of a certain very rich miser who had been robbed of a little money he said this man behaved in a miserly manner even to thieves he said of a man who had a mania for calculating on every possible occasion other men make things this fellow counts them being asked his opinion about a certain old terracotta figure of jove over which some antiquaries were disputing he said do you not see that it is a cretan jove of a foolish fellow who imagined himself to be an admirable reasoner yet was illogical whenever he spoke two words he said this person exemplifies the Greek definition of man as a logical animal. When on his deathbed, he composed this epitaph, which was subsequently engraved on his tomb. Here lie the bones of Philip Ottonieri. Born for virtue and glory, he lived idle and useless, and died in obscurity, not without a knowledge of nature and his own destiny. End of section 21